0: Welcome to Love Your Library. I'm Kate Price-McCarthy, bringing you this mini-episode of the Hampshire Library podcast. First, I want to thank our supporter, BorrowBox, our library app that allows you to download books and audiobooks straight to your phone or tablet. All you need is your library membership number and PIN. In today's mini-episode, we're going to hear from Stephen Moss, one of the country's leading nature writers and broadcasters. He's absolutely passionate about communicating the wonders of the natural world and met up with me online to talk about his latest book, The Accidental Countryside. This is all about the hidden man-made havens in which wildlife has unexpectedly thrived, everywhere from skyscrapers to the sides of railway lines to our miles and miles of grass burges. His book is the perfect complement to our naturally mindful collection of books and audiobooks on our BorrowBox app, They are all about the wildlife and nature you'll find on your doorstep. Have a look at our podcast notes for a full list of the new titles. Here's Stephen reading a short excerpt from his new book, The Accidental Countryside.
1: The peregrine falcon sits far above the ground like an emperor gazing down upon his kingdom. He is without question the top predator in this neck of the woods. Or perhaps, I should say, in this corner of the city. For, on a fine spring day, this particular peregrine is perched on the roof of Tate Modern, the contemporary art gallery in the very heart of London. He sits perfectly upright, occasionally turning his head from side to side, as his piercing black eyes, fringed with custard yellow, search for any movement below. Down there, the humans go about their business unaware of the drama about to unfold above their heads. A moment later, and a movement in the far distance, perhaps three or four hundred metres away, catches the peregrine's eye. A flock of pigeons, and one bird at the back, seems to be struggling to keep up with its companions. With a flick of his wings, the falcon is gone. He powers through the air, the breeze passing over his feathers with hardly a ruffle. He rises higher and higher, until almost out of view. Then he stops, turns, and folds his wings, before plummeting. Like a guided missile, he homes in on the straggler, eyes fixed on the target, diving at almost 180 miles an hour, yet still the pigeon is unaware of its fate. At the last possible moment, the peregrine changes his body shape once again. Pulling back on his wings, he breaks momentarily, at the same time extending his feet towards his victim and, just before impact, extrudes talons sharp as switchblades. With an explosive crack, like a rodeo whip, he grabs the pigeon. Biting its neck with his powerful hook bill, the peregrine dispatches his prey, which expires with a brief breath. Upwards into the sea blue sky he swoops, his booty hanging beneath him. More food to carry back to his hungry chicks waiting in their nest, high on the topmost ledge of a skyscraper.
0: Thank you very much. That was lovely. Thank you. Thank you. Well, can I start uh, by going back and asking you to tell us a little bit about your new book, The Accidental Countryside?
1: Yeah, it's one of those titles that is designed, I suppose, to to make the reader think, oh, I wonder what this is about. Um, the subtitle gives a clue. It's Hidden Havens for Britain's Wildlife. And it kicks off with a peregrine because that's a bird that's moved, as I said, into our cities. It's a bird that is using what scientists call an analogue habitat. All peregrines care about is a place to nest, a high perch where they can see what they're hunting for, which is basically almost any bird between the size of a duck and a goldcrest. And so they don't really care if that's a sea cliff or a mountain crag or a skyscraper. As long as, you know, there's birds around, they can hunt them. And The theme of the book is how wildlife has adapted to places that we created with no thought for the wildlife itself. We weren't Mm. thinking when we built skyscrapers or golf courses or roadside verges or railways or churchyards or any of these places, we weren't thinking, oh, that'll probably be quite good for wildlife one day. You know, it was a purely selfish human action to, to suit our needs. And yet, either at the same time as they were built or or in some cases many years later, many centuries later sometimes, the wildlife has moved in and is taking advantage of what I call accidental habitats.
0: And you talk about one of the benefits of wildlife finding this habitat in in sometimes, well, often in urban areas, that it, it is that it can inspire a love of the natural world amongst those who don't live in the country. I think I'm right to say that you benefited from this yourself. So how did urban wildlife interest you as a child?
1: Absolutely. Well, in, in a sense, it was suburban wildlife. And like <laughs> yes. 50 centres, you know, peregrines notwithstanding and a few things in the parks, They're not really what I'm writing about. It's really what what, um, Paul Farley called the edgelands. It's what uh, Richard maybe many years ago called the unofficial countryside. It tends to be on the edges of urban areas. um, And it tends to be, as I say, places like disused railway lines, roadside verges, churchyards, or in my case as a child, uh, growing up in West London in the suburbs um, around Shepparton, where the studios were, uh, was gravel pits. And gravel pits were places that they dug out for gravel to build roads and homes after the Second World War. They filled with water and they were just left. No one thought, oh, let's do something with this. They just thought, oh, well, you know, we've dug the hole now. It's filled with water, which is what happens. Let's leave it. And of course, nature just found a way to to use those places. And by the time I was growing up in the 1960s and 70s, places like gravel pits were, as they are now, really important for wildlife.
0: Tell me if I'm wrong, but I feel there's been a move towards more accidental countryside in built-up areas. In It's more acceptable, if you like, in the sense that whereas previously people thought there wasn't a place for wildflowers in a city. Nowadays, we're coming around to the idea a bit more. Um, You talked in the book about that circumstance in Bristol where uh,
1: people thought it wasn't right. That was an interesting cultural change. You're you're right. I mean, paradoxically, a lot of the sort of areas I played as a kid, what we'd have called wasteland, are now being built on, particularly in London, Um, you know, in the big cities where land and in the southeast where land is so expensive, you can't afford to have a bit of sort of scrubby land left. Um, elsewhere in the country there are more of them and in Bristol this was a a classic example where the neighbours had actually created an artificial habitat in a sense but using wildflowers and they planted wildflowers along the grassy verge because they wanted it to look nice and it was it's a good community place called Totterdown in Bristol and then um, of course as happens all the time councils subcontract so the guys came along with the mowers one day and cut everything down because they weren't you know, they weren't briefed. the council didn't know, you know, and and what has happened in recent years, city parks, for example, that used to be mown with an inch of their life, a lot of cities, and particularly very go-ahead ones like Bristol, are saying, no, let's allow the wildflowers, let's let's create some habitat um, for wildlife, because it's actually good for people, they love it. You know, another example is a lovely one in Dorset, where Dorset County Council have planted wildflower verges along their roads um, and changed the mowing regime. So instead of mowing every two weeks, they mow once or twice a year. And they've saved the local council taxpayers £93,000, which is quite a lot of money. And they've created a lovely habitat and people like it. And so, you know, often these things are win-win situations, but you still get people saying, oh, no, we want our grass. is mm-hmm. short, sure, you know, and hopefully yeah. that will change, though.
0: And I guess that points to the vulnerability of an accidental countryside as well. It can be a bit more precarious than intended countryside. It can all too easily get obliterated. And can you explain why you think that's the case, why people don't recognise yeah, it? Yeah,
1: it varies. I mean, a classic example where there was a lovely roadside verge that had been deliberately planted by Kent County Council and the Kent Wildlife Trust, working together, a very go-ahead partnership, and they planted orchids on there. And there were 17,000 orchids ready to come up. And earlier in the spring, when they weren't up yet, you know, when they were just poking through the ground again, subcontractors turned up and literally stripped the entire verge of all its earth and destroying that whole place. And that was, again, it was an accident, but it was a typical accident because it wasn't a nature reserve. It's a roadside. Um, You know, that's not say you can't have roadside nature reserves what is happening though now is a lot of these places and the sort of places i grew up around um, gravel pits for example a lot of them old quarries old peat diggings here in somerset are now official nature reserves so that is where things are changing in that these places have been recognised and you know in most cases saved but they can't all be because a lot of them are tiny little corners hidden scraps of land it's not worth building on or they're between one place and another place you know so they they, they they don't really have an official status. Um, and that is an issue with them, particularly the ones in, in and around towns.
0: Yeah, yeah, indeed. I like the way you were talking about the way that accidental countryside somehow seems a bit more inclusive. Than a more typical nature reserve, in that it's not your kind of typical white middle class visitor who's enjoying this. Yeah, have you? Do you kind of have any thoughts about why that happens? Yeah, I think it's because people don't think of them as nature
1: reserves. One of Uh true has always been, and I made television programs for many years on birds. And I had an editor working with me once, very educated middle class editor, who said to me, "Oh, I couldn't go to that place. I wouldn't. You know, it was a nature reserve in London, the Wetland Centre. I wouldn't know what to wear. I wouldn't know." You know, I wouldn't have the right gear. Now, if she, as an articulate, educated person, felt that, clearly there'd be a lot of people who would be even less likely to go to an official nature reserve. You know, I think this isn't actually a class issue. It's across the board. People think, you know, naturalists know something and they don't feel that they should go there. Now, take someone like the Bristol to Bath Railway Path or the Tower Hamlet Cemetery Park in London. People use the Tower Hamlet Cemetery Park, which is an old as its name suggests, an old disused cemetery, which Victorian Cemetery, which which was um, closed in the sixties and was allowed by again by great fantastic um, community effort to become this park. People go through it, they're commuting, they're cycling, they're jogging, there are mums and dads with prams in the mornings, there are kids on their way to school. And again, they're not thinking, oh, I'm going to a nature reserve, but the nature is there. So I think mm-hmm. that's the huge advantage. And this is particularly true in cities, it's particularly true of black and Asian and minority ethnic communities who are often excluded for all sorts of social and cultural reasons. What's lovely is when these two things come together. And the best example is, two in London, Woodbury Wetlands and Walthamstow Wetlands. And they're both run by the um, London Wildlife Trust in conjunction with Thames Water. Uh, They're working reservoirs, and yet this brilliant visionary scheme has turned these places into free-access nature reserves. So, again, people come to them without thinking, oh, I'm going to a nature reserve. Um, And because they're free access you see a typical cross-section of the population of the area around them, Hackney and Walthamstow. Which, if it were a closed nature reserve that you had to be a member to get in or pay to get in, it's not even just the money. People wouldn't go because they would Yeah. Do that. And Walthamstow, I think they expected something like 100,000 visitors in the first two years and they got over a quarter of a million in the first huh. months. So that was a classic example of, of you know, pe- once it's there, people go, oh, that looks nice. I'll go there, you know, I'll go for a walk.
0: I was going to say that since reading your book, uh, I know you, as you say, the book is primarily on those edge areas. But I, uh, as a city dweller myself, I've begun to notice much more when I go out on my my daily walk. I'm near a railway line and a a beautiful old cemetery. So prime accidental countryside spots. And as I mentioned before, I've got uh, Winchester's resident peregrine falcon nearby too. So I'd be quite interested. What do you think I should be looking out for when I'm out on my daily walk?
1: There are birds singing absolutely everywhere. You don't even have to get up early in the morning. If you do, it's probably better. If you go out in the evening, it's good as well. And people are starting to say, what's that bird? How can I find out about it? And I've I've been doing some podcasts on this. I'm hearing, um, you know, being interviewed on the Today programme. And people are fascinated this and it's particularly in London in big cities like London where I know because I used to live there you just don't notice nature it's there it's full of nature but you don't notice unless you're looking for it because you're too busy and it's too noisy and suddenly people aren't busy and it's not noisy so at the moment it's birds singing and the the classic thing is to try to if you've got a pair of binoculars take it or take your, your smartphone and try to get a photo if you can see a bird and then you can go back and try to identify it or record it uh, you can post things online and people will answer. People, you know, there's various uh, message boards and things. Or you put it on Twitter or Facebook and say, oh, I recorded this bird. I'm not sure what it is. And someone will come back and tell you it's a great tit or a chiff chaff or a black cap or a song thrush.
0: And you, you also talk about the positive impacts our gardens can have on encouraging wildlife in in built up areas. So is there any advice you can give for someone who wants to encourage more native plants and animals Absolutely. to make their home in our gardens?
1: Yeah I mean again birds are, I mean I'm a bird person so I'm sort of biased but birds yeah. of course are very visible you know there's lots of native mammals in your gardens and there's probably quite a few there now but you can't see them most of the time. But birds are very visible and the best way to get birds even in a tiny garden is to put food out if you have got, can get a feeder, fill it with ideally high energy seeds, not peanuts, uh, things like sunflower hearts. And you put them out and the birds will find it. They may take a few days to find it. We used to think that we shouldn't feed birds in spring and summer because they don't need food because there's so much out there. Actually, they need food now more than any time because blue tits in my garden are feeding young very soon. And when they start feeding young, they have to bring back a thousand caterpillars a day between the male and female. That means they're very hungry. They can't afford to eat many of those themselves. So if you provide seeds, they will come, you know, they will take a break and eat a few seeds and go off. So it's a good time to do it. And, you know, you'll be amazed what you get on bird feeders. I mean, goldfinches are a classic bird that's in every town and city in the country. People don't necessarily notice them when they do. They can't believe how beautiful they are. They're just absolutely stunning, beautiful red face and golden wings and tiny little bird, and they love seed feeders so they'll come you know there's all sorts of things chaffinches greenfinches. Mm. finches and then you can put some seed on the ground perhaps on, you know, on a ground tray or something and you might get things like blackbirds and, and song thrushes, although they tend to feed on worms and things
0: that was stephen moss talking about his latest book the accidental countryside don't forget to subscribe if you want to hear more interviews like this And it would be great if you'd rate and review our podcast on iTunes as this helps other people to find us. There's a whole host of online library activities available through our Facebook page, as well as digital resources to download, such as free newspapers and magazines, as well as our BorrowBox app. You'll find all the details on our website. Remember, while our buildings may be closed at the moment, we are always open online. I'm Kate Price-McCarthy, and you've been listening to the Love Your Library mini-podcast.